So I know we've done this before, but still, like, can you introduce yourself a little bit of your background and where you came from? Yeah, so uh, name's Joseph Coyne, uh, PhD uh, from uh, from Edith Cowan University, which is actually in Perth, Australia, but I grew up in New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand went to, uh, I guess, university in New Zealand, Otago University, and then uh, also did a graduate diploma of teaching at a place called Dunedin College of Education. That was way back in 2005. Then came over to Australia and uh, started working essentially in the performance space in Australia since then, mainly with uh, uh, sprinters, beach sprinters, surf lifesavers, triathletes, swimmers um, to start with. Then from there... Actually, my master's degree in research on swimming, the effects of uh, upper body strength on swimming paddle speed, and uh, ended up getting a job um, in in uh, China, actually. I was originally supposed to go across to China for uh, track and field, a job with the Track and Field Federation. That didn't come off, but I ended up getting a job with their Olympic Committee through EXOS, or Athletes Performance, as I called them. So I went over there, that was about 18 months. Uh, and then I, at the end of that, I switched over to uh, to the Track and Field Federation after that 18 months. Um, and that was sort of Rio Olympics, uh, 2017 World Championships, 2015 World Championships uh, in athletics and really loved my time in athletics. Came back to Australia after that. I'd had some kids um, or had a kid. And so it was, it was pretty hard uh, for family life, coaching in China and uh and also looking after the family and being there for the family. So I came home um, to Australia. Uh, I'd started my PhD by then, and then I got an offer to go back to China. Again, this time I brought my family, but it was with the UFC, uh, and I was the director of the Performance Institute at the UFC uh, in Shanghai for uh, two years. But it was really COVID-interrupted, and now I'm back in Australia. I work for Bond University and the high school called Lindisfarne Anglican Grammar, um, which are basically in my hometown. So great situation, and... Uh, that's that's basically a, a real quick fire, rapid, rapid uh, slingshot introduction of myself. Nice, nice to hear that. So, uh, the first question I want to ask is about like sprinting. I know there's like you work with like different sprint coaches and talk with a lot of like great sprint coaches, and you also work a little bit about sprinting. So when it comes to like training. Uh, like let's say like 100 meter sprinter can you explain about like your thoughts on the weekly layout like let's say some of the guys would do like monday wednesday and friday How, what about your thoughts on like when should they do like maximum sprint maximum velocity and acceleration mm-hmm. so uh a lot of the typical the typical Track and field model is a high day, low day uh, alternation over six days of the week, Sunday off. So it might be Monday, low day. You come in, you do some tempo work, you do some activation work, maybe something snappy in the gym. Um, then Tuesday, you might do acceleration followed by very heavy weights. Wednesday, same as same as Monday. Thursday, maximum velocity work followed by some uh, more powerful weights. Friday, same as Monday and Wednesday. And then Saturday, speed endurance uh, work. But that might be it. Might be speed endurance work. It might be special endurance work. It might be intensive tempo. Um, might be hills. All depends on the stage of the uh, season. But that's a real common uh, weekly outline for track and field. 
Um, that can obviously change depending on the athlete and their experience. A more advanced athletes, more experienced athletes might might have things tighter and more closely together. So, for instance, Dan Paff, his sort of microcycle, seven-day microcycles, have a lot more work in them than that. Uh, it would be quite similar to, say, Stu McMillan's um, microcycle. Uh, but in general, it's a high-day, high low-day alternation. Nice. So uh, when it comes to, like, uh, so periodization of the speed training, let's say you have, like, a meet, on uh, probably like two weeks or four weeks afterwards, how would you like program the training, or when do you start like tapering? Mm, mm, that's a great question. That's a great question, and it's I think this is really individual, um, but in general, at least ten days prior, you you want to start tapering. Charlie Francis is a famous ten day taper going into going into sprint meets, um, and it's available online. You can find it really easy to find. Uh, but yeah, in general, you want to start taping at least 10 days prior. Uh, some athletes will like doing a little something the day before. Uh, some athletes don't like that. Some athletes like doing nothing the day before. Um, but in, in my experience, what we would do is we'd always have some type of, uh, basically everything revolved for the big competitions on a four day lead in, you would have tapering prior to that. And the taper might've even been two months prior in terms of pulling back the overall workload and, and making sure people are really fresh, especially for things like the Olympics and, and so on. Um, but in the four-day sort of cycle is also really important prior to major events. So it might be travel to uh, four days out and then do a warm-up uh, or three days out and then do a warm-up. Um, then on the uh, minus two, so the two days out from the event, full rest, minus one, it's like some priming where there might be uh, something like something in the weight room. It'll be a warm-up. Depending on the person, what they like, maybe it's some medicine ball work, like power medicine ball work. Maybe it's something a little bit resisted with uh, sprinting. Maybe it's in the weight room doing something like cleans or, or jumps with a barbell, that type of thing. Um, and there's ways you can set this up for priming and then compete the following day. I've also seen situations where you might do something on the morning before a night competition. That's really, really important as well. And that that just revolves around what that person prefers. So if a person likes resting on the day uh, before, then you might do something in the morning to prime them on that evening. Um, the person might like doing their priming the day before, uh, then they might rest in the morning and only have some really light activity. It's actually really good to do some activity the morning of an event, but... Uh, but um, it doesn't always need to be a priming thing. Just even being active and getting a, a very light sweat will will do things hormonally. Increase testosterone as a main main function. You can even use blood flow restriction on the morning um, to get acute increases in testosterone for a later competition on the same day. Nice, nice. So I kind of want to like dive a little bit deeper into this, like. When I talk to like uh, Coach Boo Boo Shakespeare, there's like three day cycle, and mm. I heard from like the podcast like Randy did with Joel Smith. There's like three day cycle and four day cycle, and I know you work with Randy before. So can you like give us your thoughts on like what if there's like a three day cycle and how would you work on that? 
uh, a three day uh, three day microcycle. Yeah, yeah. Or three days before competition. Three, sorry, three day microcycle. Sorry, sorry about that. Three day microcycle. So when when I worked with Randy, the um, we didn't use a three day microcycle. We used a, a four day microcycle, but the fourth but only in some instances. Uh, and that instance was um, basically because it was for long jump only at the time. The fourth day was the rest day, and then the cycle carried on. So uh, basically, from memory, and I'd have to go back through through my notes and, and double check this. But from memory, there was a um, acceleration or approach day, a tempo day, then a jumping day, and maximal velocity uh, sprinting day. So sorry, it went like this: approaches, maximal velocity, um, tempo day, and then jumping day. Uh, along with potentially some acceleration, things like that, and then day off from that. So there was a four-day microcycle that they cycled through. Uh, from memory, that might have been before 2015 World Champs. Nice. So uh, that's where, that works for, like, long jumpers. So what if uh, if we're going to, like, discuss about, like, uh, sprinters? Mm. Sprinting, acceleration day one. Max weights, day two, tempo, day three, maximum velocity, power weights, day four, rest. And it goes that would, on. That would, be, that would be the seal. Yeah, and then it just rotates through. So you might go Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, cycle one. Next cycle, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, cycle two. Next cycle, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, cycle three. Um, but there might be changed too. Instead of the, uh, depending on the person's strengths or weaknesses, it might be max velocity, uh, day one and then speed endurance day three just depending on the on the athlete's strengths and weaknesses you could you could work it like that uh in that setup cool so go kind of go back to like the 10 day tapering uh, that kind of stuff so for those 10 days how like like um for volume wise or like intensity wise how like how is it for the intensity, are you gonna go higher and the bound how like how low would you like probably go to? Yeah, so this is really interesting, and there's lots of different ideas in the space. In general, the rules of tapering, you keep the intensity the same, you keep the frequency the same, but you drop the volume. So that means that, that those are just the the general rules of thumb. Um you can, I've seen heaps of successful people dropping frequency as well, and you can actually change uh, the neurological stimulus. can say the same, but you can change the actual local uh, uh, local target. So, for instance, Charlie Francis might use something like bench press in that period to keep a neurological stimulus um, or nervous system stimulus going on without fatiguing, muscularly fatiguing the legs uh, in that taper period. So there are those options as well that you might use in those uh, in, in any taper. But the general rules are: you keep intensity high, you keep your frequency the same, or you keep intensity the same as, as what you what you've been leading into. Um, but the volume drops away considerably. Uh, and then you, I've also seen coaches play around with frequency as well, and very successfully where instead of say day on day off day on, it might be day on day off day off day on. In terms of like training, so it might be. Uh, some type of work, then tempo and recovery core, that type of thing, then day off, 
then repeat that. So that's like a little three-day cycle you might want to use to get athletes freshened up. Like that, love that. I'm sorry that I asked a lot of like big question, and I know it's the answer is always like it depends. But thank you for answering all those. <laughs> no problem, no problem. So no, it's really good for the practical examples. I love I love talking weekly setups and and ways you can manipulate things going into competition. Yeah, it's it's a real interest area of mine. Appreciate it, man. So next thing I want to discuss is. Uh, the things that you post on Instagram when you work work with Randy and you work with Sue, so or like the chat team over there, I saw like there's a lot of like step up variations and some of like single leg RDL, but not like it's not like uh what we used to see. There's a little bit difference. So can you discuss like? At like what your thoughts on like designing these movement and why? Should like on like your thoughts on like athletes should be doing like uh single leg work and in what situation they should do like bilateral work. Uh, okay, so um, I'm in locomotion. It's unilateral, and for instance, when you're running, there is one leg is contacting the ground, then you float a bit, and then the other leg contacts the ground. Um. And walking, both legs will contact the ground at the same time. Uh, so you, to do that, it only makes sense that you need to have some unilateral loading in your programs. The um, I love the step-up for unilateral loading, and there's, there's a lot of different variations. There's a high step-up, low step-up. There's uh, contact to the box. There's uh, uh, sorry, intermittent contact on the box. There's constant contact on the box with step-ups. There's backloading with dumbbells, I mean with barbells, um, and, and there's all sorts of variations. I I really like the step-ups for any type of locomotive athlete, whether it's a field sport athlete, a track sprinter, anybody that needs to run, okay? A court sport athlete would get would get benefits out of it. Um, and even just in general, for any athlete that wants to improve their lower body strength, uh, th there are benefits for using the step-up. On my max strength days, and I'd normally program according to uh, max strength day and a power day uh, on my max strength days i would use a low box step up so this might be 15 20 centimeters uh, and my general rule of thumb is i'd want athletes to work up to 2.5 to three times their body weight in that movement this can be um, an intermittent contact so where they actually make contact go bang bang each time if it gets really heavy sometimes they just stay constant contact on the power days i like to use a high box step up uh, where the athletes might step up uh, with weight on their back onto the box uh, nice and fast and it's a bit of more power power uh, theme uh, and they might bring the other leg back up into that classic uh, classic uh, A position you might call it that might, that might happen with my high box step ups it won't happen with my low box step ups just uh, just for the reason that the load generally gets too too heavy for that Nice. So, like, uh, for, like, track and field athlete, in what situation you're going to be doing, like, uh, bilateral strength training? Mm. So there will always be something bilateral for the for the track athletes, especially sprinters. Sprinters need to uh, start out of bilateral force expression. Same with swimmers on the blocks, uh, sprinters on the blocks. So, yeah, there will always be some, some bilateral... Uh, 
coursework going on there. Um, so, yeah, there will generally be um, maybe on the power day, it might be a power clean and a high box step up, and then you've got bilateral and unilateral. And on the max strength day, it might be a squat, Kaiser squat, something like that, and uh, and a low box step up might, might be your options. Um, there, there are actually methods that you can determine whether you need to do more of or less of a uh, bilateral or unilateral work. So I, I sometimes use the bilateral deficit to figure this out. But it's one of the things, the bilateral deficit is unique to an athlete's, uh, to different exercises. So, for instance, the bilateral deficit in, say, a leg press or a squat may be different to the bilateral deficit in a jump. So I always base things off jumping. Um, and if they're... If their bilateral deficit is very, uh, very uh, low, so that means the sum of their left plus right divided by both at the same time is very is very close to one another. Then I might do that. That's a case where you might say, "Ah, oh, we need more unilateral work," especially if it's a unilateral task you want to improve. However, so that that's just in general. Then you can modulate that based on what you want to improve. Say you want to improve a person's start. That's a bilateral task. Your aim would actually be bringing down their bilateral deficit. Okay. Remember, bilateral deficit is left plus right divided by uh, two legs at the same time or the bilateral. So unilateral left, unilateral right divided by bilateral. So that is in a start, which is a bilateral focus, you might try to bring down your bilateral deficit. However, if the person needed to... Uh, maybe improve maximum velocity sprinting or even change the direction in a field sport, you might try, which is a unilateral task, you might try to bring up the bilateral deficit so that relative to the uh, bilateral exercise, say two-leg counter-movement jump, their left-leg counter-movement jump and their right-leg counter-movement jump is much greater than the two legs. So those are ways you can play around with it. And, and all of those things are suggested in the research that those differences in bilateral deficits are is advantageous for those different tasks. Nice, nice. So, in like in the state for like the teen sport athlete, there recently they were like using like more unilateral strength training because they think that uh, there's probably like too much load on the spine when they do like bilateral like lifts. So. Can you give us like some of your thoughts on this? Yeah, it just it just depends on the athlete. If they've got uh, discogenic issues in the spine, if they've got actual spine issues, there's nothing wrong with loading your legs unilateral. Um, and there are bilateral options that you can use that do not load the spine. For instance, a belt squat. Uh, for instance, a, a leg press would be other options where you don't have the axial load on the spine if you still wanted to get a bilateral load to the through the legs you could use. There's many other options you could use. So um, even a safety a safety bar squat will change the change the load going through the spine compared to a, a barbell because now the center of mass is a little bit lower. It's not as high, so there's a little bit less shear force going through the spine. So all those options uh, options are there, um, and it, it depends on the athlete. But the main thing is is you've always got to remember you want to be making the athlete better at the sport uh, it's, it's and use whatever you need to to do that. If it's a rear foot elevated split squat, if it's a leg press, 
it's a single leg leg press. Find what you need to to make them better at their sport, and it doesn't matter what exercise you use to to do so. So, uh, when I heard the podcast you did with like Rob Pacey, and you just talk about like working back from the sport, so can you like this explain a little bit about what exactly is working back from the sport? Mm. So. In the sport an athlete plays, you identify what you can have influence on. Um, say if it's track and field, it's it's, it's really easy. Um, and even as a coach, as a technical coach, or uh, or say strength and conditioning coach, you want to work back from the sport. What do they need to be good at? Okay, what does uh, winning a gold medal look like at in the Olympics? How is that broken down? What is the stride length? What is the stride frequency? Okay, where are we at now? Where do we need to get to? What are the biggest gaps? Okay, what are the interventions we can use now on those parameters to try and improve those gaps, try and lessen those gaps? So you can be really targeted. So for instance, for contact time, so if contact time was an issue with an athlete, you might use some type of parametric intervention, really focusing on contact time to help that athlete. And, of course, you've got to monitor and measure as you go along to actually see if it is improving the task you want to improve in the sport. If it's not, you need to change tact and find something else to do. Um, for instance, it might be, uh, say, contact time. It might be improving ankle stiffness is, is one of the goals, the, the actual structural goals. Um, and you might find the low contact um, or low contact time parametrics aren't, aren't doing that. Uh, then you might, okay, let's take a, another step let's go and focus on maybe maximal strength in the ankle. So it might be a seated calf you might try next. And that seated calf might be the actual intervention that's working. So it's, it's just like a grand experiment. You've got to figure out what way you want to go with it, but you should always work back from, from the sport that you're working with and understand what are the actual performance parameters of that sport. And now, okay, if I improve this, it should help him do that better um, and then focus all your energy on those tasks. Nice, nice. Love that. So let's say what if like, let's say what if I'm training a like 100 meter sprinter and at the end of like, like the 30 meters, the athlete's kind of lack of like the core, like or the motor control to maintain the high speed coordination. So what exactly besides like, uh, uh, besides, like uh, Charlie Francis, like short to long approach, is there any other like methods for you to like train the motor control, like train the neuromuscular, like uh, sorry, motor control and coordination? I'm sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. So if, if it's neuro, if it's coordination, um, there's there's a number of different ways to do that. And say so just in this in this instance. Um, and, and I assume what you're saying is they're having difficulty kind of transitioning from an acceleration to maximum velocity. So there, there's a number of different drills, running drills you might be able to use, um, different ways of loading the athlete, e.g. with a stick on their back, with a stick overhead to help improve coordination, um, with uh, micro-loading the appendages, so with wrist weights, with ankle weights. All those things serve as a skill acquisition tool for the athletes to improve and to understand how to move their body in, in time and space and, and to get into the correct shapes. 
so uh, from there, th- those those would be my main tools in that situation, especially if it's a coordination aspect and not an actual uh, physical uh, output aspect. The, they've got the engine, but they don't have the um, the software. You you need to work on the software. Nice, nice. So next thing I want to discuss is about like load man management. So when you work with like teams for athlete, you work with swimmer, or when you work with like uh, rugby athletes, how exactly do you manage those load and to like cooperate with the shin training or the weight training you do in the gym? Yeah, this is uh, this is actually the topic of my PhD, right? So training load, it's in, in general, um, you don't want to exceed uh, the average of what you've done in the last four weeks within one week. So acute to chronic workload ratio, training stress balance, you call it a number of different things. That's just the general rule of thumb. Coaches have known about that for years. If sometimes you'll get athletes that have been off for – now, actually, I'll take a step back. That that Those ratios, they're, they're not set in stone. And a lot of things influence us. So people have genetic components which enable them to handle much greater increases in training volume or much greater increases in training intensity than than other athletes. Um, Also, your previous level or or your history as an athlete will dictate what you can get up to. So say, for instance, um, I'll just give you an example. You've never had an athlete that's done high day, low day, high day, low day, high day, low day in sprinting um, or track and field maybe the high school athlete coming to you, uh, they might not be able to handle that. Um, and you'll need to step by step, maybe it's 5% increases to get there, 10% increases to get there each week um, for you to get them to that. Versus you might have an athlete that's done that for three years, then they go on break for, I don't know, four months, and they come back and see you. They might be able to slot straight back into that uh, high day, low day, high day, low day without without issue, um, just because of their years of experience in that in that system. So there's a, those sort of caveats to it. Uh, but in, in essence, you want to be monitoring what you've done over the last three to four weeks and compare that to what you're doing this week to make sure uh, the jump or the change is not too great. And you can also use that same tool for your tapers to make sure that you're actually reducing the load, um, the combined load of volume and intensity, because uh, it's really common for uh, coaches to drop the volume out, but then actually raise the intensity uh, and that it means that the taper doesn't even become a taper. It essentially just stays the same as the regular training and the athletes don't perform well. They're not rested. So having an understanding of that and having an understanding of how you can actually measure those things uh, and that training volume and intensity it becomes vital and critical, especially if you want to do well on a world stage. Nice. So do you, uh, when it comes to like load management, do you use like any certain like method to like collect some data about it yeah yeah so there's essentially two parts there's internal load and external load you uh, and there's different ways of measuring those those uh, constructs internal load is how you respond to the actual training the external load is the actual training you complete the mechanical work you do the um, internal load the main two that people will use will be heart rate and sessional ratings of perceived exertion srpe SRP is, is the most usable. Um, although if you are, especially if you're a team sport athlete or a power athlete, if you are a, a endurance athlete 
and and maybe some of the some other team sport athletes definitely heart rate is also very applicable and heart rate maybe it might be your dominant uh, dominant measure and external training load will be um, uh, something like the distance covered the speed that you actually did um, and now it's very common for it to be based off GPS or accelerometry uh, to, to give athletes even now in sprinting we're moving more and more in track and field moving more and more to that uh, sort of the mini maxes, catapult mini max devices, uh, GPS devices, and uh, that's been a really cool shift I've seen in track and field. Right. So I heard a lot like uh, coaches work with pro setting. They use like session RPE. So can you like explain to us how how this like session RPE works? All right. All right, how long do we have? How long do we have? So session RPE is like a one to 10 scale. It's not a linear scale, it's an exponential scale. So five is not uh, moderate, five is hard. Three is three is moderate. It's really important to understand that um, because the harder the things you do, it, the harder you train, the more impact it has. It's an exponential impact on your recovery in the time for you to be able to train next. So for instance, if I do something that's, I don't know, moderate, uh, 50% of my max effort, okay, versus I do something that's like 90% of my max effort, I might need to recover. I might not need any recovery out of 50% of my max effort, but I might need two or three days to recover after 90% of my max effort. So that's the real key with SRP. Um, and there's a few other things about collecting SRP scores in terms of making sure they're valid when you're collecting them. In regards to anchoring, what's zero, what's ten, uh, and and making sure athletes understand that, uh, there's a thing we we can do called a blackness test, which helps people get better at rating these uh, uh, their perceived exertion. From there, once that it's rated, uh, and you also have to rate the verbal anchors first. So, for instance, there's verbal anchors on these SRP charts, even though there's numbers, you should almost I'm a fan of um, numerically blinded RPE. Okay, so there's no numbers; it's just the verbal anchors. Athletes tell them tell you how they're feeling, then you correspond that to the to the number, um, because everybody's brain always gets mixed up with the whole linear scale, where they just feel like five should be uh, uh, moderate and um, hard would be something like a seven or eight. So numerically blinded scales, they're a big thing. I'm a big fan of them. From there, you can then multiply that rating by either the total distance you do in the session. Normally, it's the total amount of time in the session. Uh, and I have to say, it's very important. There's a lot of mistakes that have been made in the research and by practitioners to make sure that athletes are rating the intensity of the session. So that's the average intensity of the session, not how hard was the session, hard was the average intensity of the session because if you just say how hard was the session the actual duration of the session will impact that a lot it might be a very long session but the average intensity might be quite low or it might be a very long session but the average intensity might be uh moderate it might be a very short session but the average intensity might be very high so you have to make sure they're rating the intensity and not the volume or the duration of the session because then what you do you take that srp number and you multiply it by the duration of the session or the distance they travel in the session. So it's common in swimming, they might multiply it by the uh, distance they travel. Um, 
and you can do this also with with running as well uh and and cycling you could do it with in any one of those sports you could do it with uh and so that that product of that the volume and intensity then becomes your training impulse for the day and that's what you can use to monitor your uh this balance between what you've done in the last microcycle compared to the last two to three microcycles or four so microcycles. when you mentioned so when you said that the average intensity multiple by the session duration is it like minute or like uh second yeah, in minutes normally in minutes normally yep and add to the total volume like strength work right uh yeah so the for for strength work you can actually do it differently you could you could also do that um you could volume you could um give an srpe times the amount of reps for strength work okay so for instance you might do i don't know uh 60 reps in your session and you might multiply that by the srp more common um more common in uh and weightlifting or strength conditioning or strength, I should say, strength training is for you to do sets by reps by weight, okay, as a volume load. That's another way you could uh, you could do it. Your sets by reps is your volume um, and the actual weight is your intensity factor. And that can be expressed as a total weight or can be expressed as a percentage of your 1RM. So uh, do you, like, add these together, these session RP for the – like let's say um no matter swim training or like uh, rugby training and add the load volume with the weight training do you add it together or just the only way you can add them together is if you use one common intensity factor or rating across all the different modes of training the only way you can do that you can do it with heart rate but it, it fails when you get into uh intermittent activities like weightlifting like uh, sprinting, all that type of thing. Um, the only way you can do that is is with sessional RPE. Nice, nice, nice. Love that. And, and then what 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 I, what I generally do um, is is there will be a uh, non technical component to everything, which might be your strength conditioning, um, anything that's not the actual training for the sport or outside of what they'll be doing in the sport. And then there's a technical component. Um, and then that's how I break up my my load management. Love that, love that. I used to like discuss with uh, a lot of like strength coaches or like performance coaches in the pro team and discuss pro settings. I'm sorry to discuss like how they manage the load. And they also they often brought up like session RP and how they use use it. But when it comes to, like combine it into like weight training when they use like the when they try to manage the load in the let's say basketball training they use session rp but when it comes to like load management they just use like uh like how much weight and multiple by reps and like set and they just add together it like just for all those times it just kind of doesn't make sense for me mm, yeah no it's you you um, you can get a factor. You, you can use your SRPE to kind of give you what is apples to apples in the technical and non-technical training. So you can then compare if you're only using external load, but SRPE would be the common factor. Um, and even then, that is actually fraught with danger. 
to, to do it correctly, you need SRP and, and, and all your activities. Um, and to be honest, if I'm working with a group that uh, um, doesn't record SRP in the technical training, uh, it's it's rare that I'll actually use it in the non-technical like strength conditioning um, just because you need an overall picture of the stress that's being applied to an athlete um, and you're better off going oh for me I'm, I'm experienced enough where I can go off what I'm what I'm seeing and and what the amount and the time and the duration um, what I'm seeing in the say in the weight room um, and it's not much use if you're only doing it uh a piecemeal, in my opinion, should be applied across all all facets if you are going to use it. Cool, cool, cool. So, I'm gonna switch the topic to like uh, the experience you work with, like UFC. Okay. Okay. So when it comes to like working with like uh, working with the UFC, there's a lot of like uh, rotational movement. So. Uh, can you discuss about a little bit about like the sequence of like ro- the rotation? Mm. Yeah, so for the UFC, I actually didn't do much practical work with the athletes. Um, we had strength conditioning coaches that that worked with them, um, and I helped coordinate those those coaches and manage those coaches. But uh, besides that disclaimer that the rotational work is the same as a throw, essentially throwing a punch. Is, is very similar to throwing a um, throwing an implement. Um, kicks are kicks are again similar, but there's force transmitted into the floor to generate uh, rotation, and there's rotation around the axes of the body. And so athletes need to be able to move in multiplanar uh, arrangements, and they need to be able to produce force into the floor. So it's no coincidence that a lot of punching power is correlated with lower body strength and lower body power. Um, and kicking power obviously is, is correlated with lower body strength and power. Even in your uh, uh, sagittal plane movements, like a squat um, or deadlift. Nice. So, uh, does the strength training work for like the, those boxers or like those, uh, yeah, boxers? It's kind of the same with when you work with a track and field athlete. Or is it different? I mean, the strength training focuses might be slightly different, um, and they'll generally not not get up to the same levels of lower body strength as a as a track athlete uh, or field athlete because there's more. It's not as specialised their event, and they have to cover more bases. They have to have more endurance and a few other things. Um, but uh, and there will also be a lot more upper body work with a, uh, we'll say an MMA fighter. So, but the strength uh, work definitely helps them. The strength work definitely helps them. Yeah. So uh, I know we work with tons of like athletes and like different sports. So for like for a performance coach who just graduated or just finished their like let's say their master of, like PhD is there like. Uh, um, some recommendation or like some advice for the these young coaches. Mm. So my advice this is what I actually did, <laughs> uh, and I think it's very very important practically. Um, 
go and train gymnastics, adult gymnastics for a year. Gymnastics is like the grandmother of, of uh, performance coaching, strength conditioning. Go and coach, go and compete in weightlifting for a year. Okay, go and be an athlete in weightlifting yourself for a year. Weightlifting is like the grandfather of strength and conditioning. Okay, uh, then uh, go and compete in track and field for a year. Okay, track and field might be the grand uncle. Okay, of of strength and conditioning and performance coaching. So once you've done that, that's three years practical experience. Once you've done that, uh, you you understand leverage. You will understand training concepts. You'll understand. Uh, so many things that you you won't get out of a university degree. So those would be my recommendations for sure. I love this. I love this because for my own, when I started my career, I actually like learned Olympic weightlifting for a uh, for a, he used to be he used to be on the national team for weightlifting. I worked with him like for like a year and a half. And now I'm working with the track coach also for a year and a half. But probably going to start working with gymnastics. Yeah, go and do adult gymnastics. You'll learn so much, especially upper body strength, upper body pulling, wrist preparation, ankle preparation, flexibility. You'll learn a lot. Yeah, appreciate it for the time, man. So for those coaches who are interested in what we're talking about today, where can you? They, where can they reach out to you? And I know last time you brought this up, brought this up, but still, I know you have like a education for like sprinting for like speed training. Mm-hmm. Is there going to be an upcoming event? Where can they find this? Uh, so yeah, no events planned as yet. But if people want to um, check it out, it's uh, um, Hit Science H I I T Science. Uh, dot com. There's a developing maximal sprinting speed course that I've put together um, in conjunction with uh, Martin Boucher and also Paul Larson, who managed managed that uh, hit science portfolio. So that's a that's a great course right then and there. The um, and and highly recommended. Um, so 100%. I'll jump on that. People are really interested in it. I can probably organise a. Uh, like a discount code or something like that if you get in touch. Um, and then, look, if you want to get in touch, I'm on your sort of social medias, at Joseph Coin on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and that's probably the easiest way. Nice. Appreciate it, man. Awesome. Thanks, Eric.